Man. Craig, Steve, Band and Choir, thank you so much. What a blessing it is that we have them. Yes? A bless God for you guys. Thank you. Brad, it's interesting you mentioned Wings Avs. You know, because today's sermon to- topic is discouragement. And Brad, Proverbs 11. You know, talking smack with Proverbs 11. I. You're starting to read the Bible now. That's good. You always have to be careful who has the mic last, right? Hey, it's not over yet. I've seen the Avs pull um, worse-looking series out, so we'll see, and we'll enjoy it together no matter who wins. It's easy to say that when you're up 2-0, isn't it? Please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 18. Poor Paul! Poor Paul, we've left him stranded in Athens for over a month. He must be wondering, where did all those people go that have been following me around? Well, Paul, we're back. And we're back again to follow Paul's incredible story and to learn from Paul and his experiences about what it's like for us too, as we, like Paul, bring the kingdom of God to a world desperate for it. And this morning... Believe it or not, we actually finished Paul's second missionary journey. I know, cause for an amen, a wow, or even a woo-hoo. Go ahead. I know, it's important in such a long series that we celebrate milestones along the way. And so it is with great excitement and joy and sense of accomplishment that this morning we follow Paul all the way back to his church home, at least, in Antioch. And then next week... Lord willing, we'll see where God leads Paul and us too on Paul's third journey. Don't miss it. I know I won't. But between now and then, there's this matter of Corinth and Paul's experience there. What do we know about first century Corinth? Well, as you can, I think, make out on the map just barely behind that black line, Corinth is on an isthmus. I know you can't. It's a fun word to say. It's a great tongue twister. Say isthmus five times quickly. That may be as close as West Bulls gets to speaking in tongues. I don't know. Corinth is on that narrow neck of land joining central and southern Greece. Corinth had two harbors, one on either side of the isthmus. I've practiced. And those clever Corinthians... They built a special road of rounded wooden logs, three and a half miles long across the isthmus, so they would take and drag ships over land on those logs from one harbor to the other. Can you imagine? And then the main north-south trade routes also converged in Corinth to connect with those ships. And so, in short, Corinth became very wealthy and prosperous, an economic boomtown. But even more than its wealth... Corinth was also world-renowned, unfortunately, for her sexual immorality. Corinth was the center for the worship of Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of love. And her temple, one temple alone in Corinth, history tells us, had 1,000, 1,000 so-called sacred prostitutes who were the central act of worship. For those going to temple, I know, sick, sick stuff. Even, even the vocabulary of that day reflects the depths of sexual immorality in Corinth. For example, 
If you wanted to refer to a prostitute in the first century, slang for a prostitute, all you had to say was, yeah, a Corinthian woman. And everyone knew who or what you were talking about. The city name itself, Corinth, was even used as a verb. Did you know that? To Corinthianize meant to be sexually immoral. So when we think of Corinth, if we think about that combustible, dangerous combination of, of money and sex gone amuck in a fallen world, we've got a pretty good idea of what Paul was heading into as he left Athens for Corinth. And perhaps an idea that Paul was heading into a world not wholly unlike our own. One more piece of background, and then we'll pick up the story in Acts 18. You should know there was a very strong Jewish presence in Corinth, especially when Paul arrives probably sometime in 51 A.D. Because only two years earlier, Roman history tells us that Claudius Caesar expelled all the Jews, including Jewish Christians, from Rome. Because, and this shouldn't surprise you, go figure, they were constantly disturbing the peace with their arguments over whether Jesus was indeed the Messiah or not. Can you imagine? Caesar in Rome finally had an earful of it. He finally had enough of it and kicked the whole lot of them out of Rome. In a minute, we'll meet, very briefly at least, one Jewish couple who decided to come to Corinth as a result of Claudius's edict. And so perhaps historians guess and speculate and tell us that there were many more Jews who chose nearby Corinth as a place to stay until Caesar might cool off, reconsider, and let them return to Rome. All right, with those background pieces in mind, Corinth's money, immorality, and, and significant Jewish presence, let's follow Paul's story in Acts 18, and let's see what God has in store for him and for us in Corinth. Acts 18, verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And there he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, you recall Paul left them in Berea when he made his way to Athens, they finally catch up with them here in Corinth. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching. Some have speculated probably because Silas and Timothy came with some monetary support from the Berean and Macedonian churches, so he didn't have to work quite as much, at least as a tent maker, so he could devote himself exclusively to preaching. Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when the Jews opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I'm clear of my responsibility. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. Crispus, who must work at the Kellogg Company, Crispus... The synagogue ruler and his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard him believed and were baptized. One night, the Lord, Jesus, spoke to Paul in a vision. 
Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one is going, is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed for a year and a half teaching them the word of God. While Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, Greece, and the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him into court. This man, they charged, is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Just as Paul was about to speak, in Greek it literally says, even as Paul opened his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it'd be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names and your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. So he had them ejected from the court. Then they all turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue ruler, and beat him in front of the court. But Gallio showed no concern whatever. These are the very words of God. Amen? Have you ever been discouraged? Well, that's got to be the mother of all rhetorical questions, right? Maybe I should ask instead, how many times so far this morning have you been discouraged? Life is sure discouraging at times, isn't it? And contrary to some popular Christian teaching, which really isn't Christian at all, life is not necessarily always less discouraging for Christians, is it? I mean, have you found yourself to be immune from discouragement because you are a Christian? You know, if, if there's someone in here who has never been discouraged, please see me after the service because I want your prescription. To the contrary, life is often much more discouraging because we are Christians, isn't it? You say, how so? Well, we Christians, we Christians of all people are well aware of the sin problem that we and the world face. And the ugly problem of sin is discouraging. And we Christians are, are given by God the command to go into all the world, to go out there. And all we have to do, get this, all we have to do is to teach the world to obey God. That's all. Well, that's never discouraging, is it? Teaching the world obedience. And so we set out with God's help and we do our best to carry out Jesus' great commission, battling as we go against our own sinful tendencies, which constantly want to get in the way. And even if we manage with God's help to keep those at bay long enough, waiting for us on the other side of that very personal internal battle, there stands an impassive, often hardened world waiting for us in ambush, it sometimes seems, with all of its stubborn reluctance and, and even outright opposition to the gospel of Jesus Christ. There stands the world bent on doing what it wants rather than what God wants. And that can be very discouraging, especially for Christians desperate to impact the world, change the world, teach the world to obey God, especially for Christians whose deepest desire is to see those that they love, the, the world that they love, to see them find God. Only 
to watch them far too often, it seems, to be in, in constant indifference or, or even running the other way. And it's downright discouraging sometimes. I came across a, a short story this week written by one of my favorite authors. I've shared this author with you before. You know him too. His name is Anani Moose. Or maybe he's a her. I believe Anani is an ancestor of Bowinkle. I'm fairly certain of that. But anyway, not so certain you're glad I'm back, are you? Here's the story. Once upon a time, it was announced that the devil was going out of business and would sell all his equipment to those who were willing to pay the price. On the big day of the sale, all his tools were attractively displayed. There were there envy, jealousy, hatred, malice, deceit, sensuality, pride, idolatry, and other implements of evil on display. And each of the tools was marked with its own price tag. Over in the corner by itself was a harmless-looking wedge-shaped tool, very much worn, but still it bore a higher price than any of the others. Someone asked the devil what it was, and he answered, that's discouragement. The next question came quickly. And why is it priced so high, even though it's plain to see that it is worn more than these others? Because, replied the devil, it is more useful to me than all these others. I can, I can pry open and get into a man's heart with that when I cannot get near him with any other tool. And once I get inside... I can use him in whatever way suits me best. It's worn well because I use it on everybody I can. And few people even know it belongs to me. The tool was priced so high that no one could buy it. And to this day, it has never been sold. It still belongs to the devil. And he still uses it on humankind. It's true. The devil loves to, to bog us down in discouragement. To use discouragement to manipulate us. It's one of his favorite tactics to use against God's people. Because he knows if he can demoralize and frustrate or depress or discourage us, maybe we'll just abandon the battle against him and for God. So he pries open our heart with wedges of discouragement. He whispers all sorts of discouraging things to us, hoping we just quit trying. We just quit on people. We just quit on a marriage that takes work. We just quit on our kids. And we certainly just quit on nasty pagans who don't accept Jesus. Just quit trying. What good does it do? Recently, I came across a, a small online company poking fun at all of those kind of short, pithy, inspirational posters we see hanging around. Do you know the ones? Right? They're the posters with some striking, poignant, vivid, colored picture. And then underneath the, the picture in big, bold letters are, are words like perseverance. Right? Have you seen them? And then, and then the smaller type under that big perseverance type word, it says something like, 
Every expert was once a beginner. And this is supposed to inspire us, I suppose. In this case, I'd persevere in our quest to become experts too, I guess. I don't know. Well, one company decided to have some fun with these posters and come up with posters of their own. Now, I'm nervous about using them this morning a little bit, and I'll tell you why. I'm certainly using them as a bit of humor to be sure to introduce our topic. And laughter, it seems to me, is a great weapon against discouragement when we can find it. Uh, I'm well aware, I know, uh, sometimes discouragement is so deep, laughter just isn't possible. So I want to be sensitive to those here today who are deeply discouraged. But I'm going to do it anyway. I decided to show them anyway. The more I looked at these posters, the more it struck me that, that, that these are just the sorts of things, however shown humorously, they're still... There's still the sorts of things that the devil whispers to discourage us. I imagine this week, if the devil has an office or a workspace, these are the types of posters hanging on the wall. Okay? So, so see what you think. Let's dive in. We'll see how it goes. I don't know if you can all read it. Despair. It's always darkest just before it goes pitch black. Defeat. For every winner, there are dozens of losers. Odds are you're one of them. <laughs> hey, Micah, wait with the slide till I call it. It gives me a chance to introduce it. Mistakes. It could be that the purpose of your life is only to serve as a warning to others. That's a little discouraging. Now, we laugh. In part, is your laughter a bit nervous at all? Is it nervous laughter? Maybe it's just striking you as funny this morning. It's my sense of humor, too, so you know I confess it. But um, the devil whispers stuff like that sometimes, and it hurts. How about this one? Losing. If at first you don't succeed, failure may be your style. Here's one for the golfers. Hazards. There is an island of opportunity in the middle of every difficulty. Miss that, though, and you're pretty much doomed. <laughs> Here's one of the direct attacks of the devil. I know. He's used this one on me. How about you? Give up. At some point, hanging in there just makes you look like an even bigger loser. funny, but does it ever hit home when it's not? Futility. I like this one. You'll always miss 100% of the shots you don't take. And statistically speaking, 99% of the shots you do. Failure. When your best just isn't good enough. <laughs> Here's one for you, Lucille, and the other counselors in the room. Dysfunction. The only consistent feature of all your dissatisfying relationships is you. There's truth to that one, too, I think. One more. Doubt. In the battle between you and the world, bet on the world. <laughs> 
Now, again, I suppose those are funny at some level, but I, they get less funny when real pain and discouragement comes into your life, doesn't it? In Acts 18, I think Luke gives us a window into Paul's battle with discouragement. And if we're surprised even a little that the great Apostle Paul would become discouraged, we shouldn't be. Paul's only human. Recall with me a bit just the past few months in the life of the Apostle Paul. You remember, he's following the Holy Spirit on where to go. Holy Spirit is leading me. In Troas, God gives him a dream. It's a man of Macedonia. Please, Paul, come to help, he says in his dream. And he must have been excited leaving Asia for Europe, a whole new continent and horizon with which to which to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ. How exciting. And his first stop is Philippi. And in Philippi, he's beaten, thrown into jail and run out of town. Well, no matter, on to Thessalonica, woohoo, where he's run out of town. Well, no problem, on to Berea, where he's run out of town. Athens? The Athenians didn't violently drive Paul out, but they may have even done something that discouraged him in a way more. As one commentator puts it, Paul was dismissed with polite contempt. Which, if you've ever experienced that sort of not-so-subtle cold-shoulder rejection, you know that's often even more painful than direct face-to-face confrontation where at least you have a chance to respond. So what's Paul's mood like as he leaves Athens? Okay. On to Corinth. Lots of folks there blinded by wealth. The world capital of sexual immorality. Great. Can't wait. Woo-hoo. Can we see where, where Paul might be starting to drag a little? I mean, so much consistent rejection. If Paul were alive today, the poor man might be diagnosed for sure with some sort of complex, wouldn't he? And then there's this, a a whole other level to Paul's discouragement that isn't often appreciated half enough, in my opinion. One that runs really, really deep, deep down into Paul's Jewish core. Something that's easily the source of Paul's greatest pain in ministry. No question about it in my strong opinion. I'll tell you why I think that in a minute. For now, as Rachel said to Leah, please bear with me. Jacob's wives bore children together. I've used that one on you, but I'm going to keep doing it until you laugh. So, Paul's most profound discouragement seems to be the opposition he faces from his own people, the Jews. Now, don't forget, many Jews believed, and we've seen in past weeks where these earliest churches were almost always primarily Jewish Christians. All scholarships of every stripe and spot agree. But those Jews who didn't believe, let me tell you, they were one hard-nosed, stiff-necked bunch, and they came after Paul loaded for bear. And as many of you know through experience, I have no doubt if we pass the mic today, it's one thing when someone outside 
rejects you and opposes you. That's rough. But it doesn't even come close to when someone inside your own people, your own friends, your own community come after you. And make no mistake, when it came to Jews and Israel in particular, that is a strong bond. The bond among Jews around the world went way beyond any concept we have your own people or friends or community. This was family for Paul, as tight as any nuclear dad, mom, brother, sister family that we could possibly imagine. And to have your own family who you cared for so deeply, to have them so vehemently reject and oppose and even stone you, try to kill you and leave you for dead, how absolutely devastating. And from the beginning of Paul's call to bring Jesus to both Israel and to the Gentiles, you look it up, Paul has been standing up saying, Countrymen, Jesus is Messiah. And wham, knocked down by even some of his own Jewish family. He gets back up, Jesus is the Messiah. Wham, Jesus is Messiah. Wham, Jesus is Messiah. Wham. And then one day in Corinth, after years of this, can we understand where the man says to a group of Corinthian Jews, you know what? I have had enough of you. Your blood be on your own head. You're not my responsibility anymore. And can we understand why our dear friend Paul can't resist that one last zinger, the one we like to if we're tempted by sin and fall, we get that zinger in, right? The one he knows is going to dig at his unbelieving Jewish brothers more than anything he might possibly say. Paul lands this one, I picture, as he turns to storm out. And from now on, God's message is for the Gentiles. No soup for you. Yeah, about one for six today. Then Paul storms out of the synagogue. Did you catch it in the text? Into the first house he sees, maybe, that's not Jewish. He goes into the house right next door of a Gentile God-fear, maybe to show anyone watching that he really, really meant it about, look at me, going into the Gentile house. If Titius Justice's house had a door to... Bam! (laughs) There's Titius, right? Well, hello, Paul. Maybe Paul's even muttering to himself in frustration and discouragement. How can these people even call themselves people of God? Accuse me of blasphemy. I blasphemy. You know, Stephen was right. Elijah himself could come back and these people would reject and kill him. Have you ever been there with people in your life and ministry? Now, what follows Paul's discouragement, his tantrum, if you will, is fascinating. There's this curious little verse kind of stuck right there between Paul storming out of the synagogue and the vision he has of Jesus. Did you catch it? The verse at first seems oddly out of place. You read it, it doesn't really fit with the flow. You read it and you wonder, what is this verse doing here? 
Why did Luke put this verse here? It's verse 8. Crispus, the synagogue ruler, that is, Crispus, a leading Jew, Crispus, the synagogue ruler, and his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard him believed and were baptized. Why does Luke put that verse here? Here's the possibility. Look at the progression. Paul loses it and swears off Jews, right? At, at least the Jews of Corinth. And immediately after that, immediately after that, Luke tells us of the Jewish ruler of the synagogue, they're Christians and they're effectively evangelizing the Corinthians. Oh, you got to smile a bit there. I mean, Paul says, I'm done with you Corinthian Jews. Luke, a leading Jew and his family, were spreading the gospel in Corinth. Is it Luke's way of saying not too subtly, um, not so fast, Paul? You're clear of your responsibility to speak to the Jews? Exactly when was it that Jesus said that to you? You told me earlier that your commission was to be Jesus' witness to Israel and the Gentiles. Is it Luke's way of foreshadowing Jesus' encouraging words to Paul that immediately follow? With an encouraging sentence about a Jew who not only believes, but who is effectively helping spread the gospel. And so Paul storms out of the synagogue. He's clearly discouraged. We can tell by what Jesus says to him that he's feeling afraid, alone. And maybe he even wants to quit. I'm afraid. Do not be afraid. It sounds so good. To just stop. Keep on speaking, Paul. Don't be silent. But I'm all alone. No, you're not. I'm with you. And there are others with you too. I've got many people in this city. You're not alone. And it's enough for Paul. Look at verse 11. So Paul stayed for a year and a half. That's a record for Paul. Teaching them the Word of God. So what might we learn from this passage about what to do when, when we're discouraged, particularly in that area of our Christian life and ministry? Two things at least jump out from this story. First, when we're feeling afraid, when we feel alone, when we feel like quitting, we need to remember God's with us. Jesus is right here with us. And so is God's people. We're not alone in this thing. We've got an incredible partner in God. One that will do it all if we let Him. Jesus promised in the Great Commission that He would be with us always as we try and teach the world to obey God. And he comes and he reassures Paul. Paul, I'm still keeping that promise. I'm with you, Paul. You're not alone. I don't know if you ever thought about that. Do you know God understands discouragement over teaching his people to love and obey him? Do you remember Exodus 33? Exodus 33 is just after the people of Israel, they've just worshipped a golden calf. 
And after punishing their sin, God tells Moses, get up, get moving to the promised land. And he says to Moses, I'll send an angel before you and I'll drive out the Canaanites. But then God says a curious thing, and I confess it it makes me chuckle. It just cracks me up. He says to Moses, but I will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way. (laughs) Actually, tell the Israelites, God says to Moses, you are a stiff-necked people. If I were to go with you, even for a moment, I might destroy you. God knows discouragement with his own, when his own people are slow to obey, doesn't he? Is Paul's situation any different? He's discouraged with God's people too. You know, Jesus is no stranger to discouragement either. At least the trial of discouragement. On the most difficult night of his life, the night before he is crucified, he asks his closest disciples simply to keep watch with him. Well, he goes on a little farther to pray. You know the story. Three times he comes back and finds them sleeping. Now, that had to be a bit discouraging. And not too long before, right after Jesus tells his disciples, the very next story in two of the three synoptics, right after he tells his disciples, guys, I'm going to be handed over and killed, right after they start arguing over which one of them is the greatest. Oi! That had to be discouraging. So be encouraged that that we have a God and Savior who knows what it's like to be discouraged by stiff-necked people, even those we know as family. And be encouraged that He keeps His promise to always be with us. So first, remember, God is with us. Second, Remember your love for people who are lost and need Jesus. Jesus says to Paul, I'm with you, Paul. I've got many people in this city. Some have suggested I can see it as well. I'll throw my opinion in with them that Jesus may also be referring to people that Paul has yet to reach. Those elect or predestined. Maybe both. Paul, I've got many here. As frustrating as stiff-necked people are, Paul, do you love them enough to hang in there? Do you love me enough to hang in there for them? Do you? Don't give up on them. Hang in there with them. Don't stop reaching out to them, even if they refuse to listen, even if they come after you. Don't quit on them, Paul, because I'm not quitting on them ever. And I love them, Paul. And I know you do, too. You just lost it for a while. Find that love again. Earlier I suggested to you that that it was Paul's deepest, most profound pain in his entire ministry, this unbelief of his fellow Jews. Here's some evidence backing that up. It's Romans 9. See if you can hear Paul's love and compassion as he writes. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Why, Paul? Why this unceasing anguish? For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ 
for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Paul pours out his heart here for the Jews. So deep is his love that if he could exchange his own salvation for theirs, he'd do it. Now that's love. And guess, guess what our best guess is about when and where Paul writes the letter to the Roman church, the book of Romans. He's in Corinth. Six years later, six years after yelling, you know what, your blood be on your own heads. I'm going to the Gentiles. Six years later, from the same city, Paul writes, I have unceasing anguish for the sake of my brothers, the people of Israel, and would exchange my own salvation for theirs if I could. Now that's love. Do we have the same kind of love for those who stubbornly reject and abuse us when we bring God's Word to them? Do we have the same kind of love for Paul's people, the Jews? Do we have the same kind of love for those blinded by wealth and pleasure and immorality in our society? Or just keep them locked out of church and to heck with them? Shouldn't we reach out and always relentlessly love them like Paul loved his people? Speaker and author Kent Crockett in his book, I have not read his book, I've read this portion of it, I love it, and I love his title. It's one of those titles that, oh, I wish I wrote that. Here's the title of his book. I once was blind, but now I squint. It's like, oh, another great title, off the market. I can't use that one. Oh, well, I guess I just did. Kent Crockett tells this story. My daughter Hannah practiced for two weeks for the high school cheerleader tryouts. She had been a junior varsity cheerleader but wanted to move to the top squad. Only three varsity spots were available in a school of about 2,000 students. And Hannah was nervous about competing against the other girls. Dad, do you think God wants me to make the varsity squad? She asked. Practice as hard as you can, I answered. Do your best at the tryouts and leave the results to God. Her best friend, Melissa, who was already a varsity cheerleader, practiced with Hannah every day to help her make the varsity squad. They had talked about how fun it would be if they could cheer together. Melissa taught her the proper way to jump and encouraged her to keep a smile on her face. When Hannah became discouraged, Melissa always egged her on with, You can do it, Hannah! I know you can! On the day of the tryouts, over a hundred girls showed up to compete for three spots. And immediately, my wife, whoop, that afternoon, each girl performed a routine in front of the judges, and the results of the competition would be posted at 9.45 p.m. Although each contestant had high hopes of making the squad, all but three would go home heartbroken that evening. Just before 10 p.m., Hannah came bursting in the front door, sobbing uncontrollably. Immediately, my wife Cindy and I jumped out of our chairs and, and rushed over to comfort her for not making the cheerleading squad. Cindy patted her on the back and said, It's okay that you didn't make varsity cheerleader. We still love you and we're so proud that you tried. And Hannah continued to cry. 
She finally settled down and explained what happened. Mom and Dad, I did make varsity, but Melissa didn't make it. That's how Paul feels about Jews. The judges demoted her to the junior varsity squad and gave me her place on the varsity. She is devastated. I hurt so badly for her. We were stunned. Melissa had gone the extra mile to help Hannah make the varsity team so they could cheer together. Kind of like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Ruth, Boaz, Isaiah, Jeremiah, David. We certainly didn't expect this strange turn of events. With with hands covering her face, Hannah continued to weep. I don't even want to be a varsity cheerleader now. I want my junior varsity position back so Melissa can stay on the varsity. Do you think the judges will let me swap places with her? I love her so much. Hannah, I don't think the judges would allow that, I said. She realized what she needed to do. Immediately she got up, walked out the front door, and drove to Melissa's house. She wanted to comfort Melissa that night. So she slept at the floor next to her bed. I watched Hannah lead cheers at varsity football and basketball games for the next two years. But that's not what I remember most about her cheerleading career. My fondest memory of all was the night she slept on the floor of a hurting friend. Do we hurt like that? For those who have not accepted Jesus as Messiah? Do we love others enough to even desire to change places with them if we could? Shouldn't we? When frustrated and discouraged with Christian life and witness, we need to remember that God is with us every step of the way. And we need to remember and love those who desperately need Him too. Jesus also said it this way. He said the greatest thing for you to always remember regardless of the circumstance. He said the most important thing for you to remember regardless of your circumstance. He even said the thing for you to remember that's necessary to inherit eternal life regardless of the circumstance. The most important thing. Keep on loving God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your might, and keep on loving your neighbor as yourself. Remember God is with you. Love Him. Trust Him to keep that promise. And remember your love for others. And God will encourage you. 1 P.S. And then we'll close by reading Paul the rest of the way back home. Who else do you remember in the Bible? Who else do you remember in the Bible who grew frustrated by his own people, the Jews, stormed out of Israel, wanting nothing more than God's wrath and judgment to rain down on the people, wanting nothing more than to quit ministry? Who else do you know? He went and holed up in a cave on Mount Sinai. 
Elijah, remember? Elijah literally runs for fear of his life. He's afraid to Sinai, complains to God, I am utterly alone. And judging by God's response to him, he would prefer it if God would be in the earthquake and the fire. Just judge Israel and be done with her. And Elijah wants to die. He just wants to quit. He's afraid. He feels alone and he wants to quit. Sound familiar? And God comes to Elijah in the gentle quiet of mercy rather than the earthquake and fire of judgment and says to Elijah, no, no, no. I'm not going to destroy them. And and you're not alone. There are 7,000, I think he says, in Israel that still follow me. And I need you to get back in there for the sake of those who don't. Paul's story sound familiar? To Elijah's, to yours? Listen to the words of Moses. Defending the Israelites to God. Moses pleads with God, please forgive their sin, but if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. Is that Moses in Exodus 32 or Paul in Romans 9? Like Moses and Elijah, and perhaps even like God in a way, Paul finds patience with stiff-necked people. Paul finds again his love and trust of God, his confidence in God that he is indeed there with him. And Paul finds again his love of others, even those, especially those who are against him. And he's encouraged. Do me a favor, and then I'll let you go home. Look around you this morning at your church family, if you would, please. Yes, church, we don't look backward. Go ahead, look around. Go ahead, look around. See everyone? This is God's design. See all these people? We've all got your back. So be encouraged. If you're discouraged this morning, remember God is with you. And look again for your love for hurting people who don't know Jesus and need Him desperately. If it's not there, then pray for it. Pray for that love if you need to. Find it and be encouraged to get back in there. And by the way, in the battle between you and the world, don't bet on the world. Bet on God's love and mercy to win. Because it already has in Christ. Let's close quickly by getting Paul to his home church in Antioch. I promised you. Five verses. Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. Then he left the brothers and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at Centuria because of a vow he had taken. They arrived at Ephesus, where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. He himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. What happened to your blood be on your own head? I'm going to the Gentiles. When they asked him to spend more time with them, he declined. But as he left, he promised, I'll be back. I will come back if it is God's will. Then he set sail from Ephesus. When he landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church, probably Jerusalem, and then went down to Antioch. And so ends Paul's second missionary journey. Let's pray. Father in heaven, it is so easy, as you well know, become discouraged 
in Christian life and ministry, especially with stiff-necked people that come after us and run the other way and would do us harm and make us feel foolish for hanging in there. Please, Father, would you give us today, right now, that same word of encouragement that you sent your son, that Jesus came and gave to Paul that day in Corinth. Would you allow us to feel your presence, to see it? We know you're there, Father, but we don't always see it. Give us the eyes to see that you're here with us. Give us the heart to love you and to love others as ourselves. Father, may we hear the words of Jesus through the love of our community here and at home. Don't be afraid. Keep speaking. Don't be silent. For I am with you. I'll protect you. And I got a lot of people who love me too. Father, we love you. We can't do this thing without you. Thank you for being such an awesome partner. And thank you for loving us. We pray this in the blessed name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, and all God's people said, Amen and Amen. Good to see you guys again. I've missed you. Have a great week. Praise God.